I told you last week a little snippet of Margie's story, and I want to continue that. She was a new believer, college co-ed, and uh, found that part-time work wasn't quite enough to cover her college expenses. So we're uh, hurrying one day to class. She went past the accounting office where she worked part-time, and uh, Sally, one of the women there, uh, called out to her and said, oh, did you see what's in your mailbox? She, thinking that that meant your bill is there, said, I know, I know, it's due, it's past due. Um, I'll talk to you when I come back from class. Well, as it turned out, the accounting office had made a mistake. Someone had anonymously sent a check to help with her tuition during that semester, but it had never been posted. And so she had been reminded by the office that she still had a bill to pay. The office made the discovery and posted the check the day that her bill was due. It's already there, all taken care of. That's the way it is with the church. The Lord has already provided all that we need to be his people and to glorify him. It's already, as it were, in the bank because of what Christ has done for us. This morning we're going to look at the parts of the church that Paul addresses in the section David just read for us. So if you have a Bible, would you please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 16. And really what's here is a statement about how God cares for local congregations. Now, Paul has a three-pronged approach here. There are three parts, if you will, to the way in which God cares for his people, and they are these. Uh, he cares through his people through Christ, who's the head. He cares through his people, for his people through leaders slash facilitators. And he cares for his people through the saints themselves, and that's what we'll look at in that order. Christ is, we're told in these verses, the head. Now that's not to say that he's the head uh, in contradistinction, for example, to an arm or a foot or an appendix. He's a head in a different sense. We are told that he is the head over all things to the church. That's at the end of chapter 1. That is to say that Christ is both source and goal for the church. Now, verse 15 makes that clear. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We trust in Christ. He's the source of our life. We're to grow up into him, the one who cares for us. We live for him because he's the king of the church. And we aim to be like him in all that we think and say and do. He's also the goal of our lives. And as our head, Paul also makes the point here that besides being source and goal, he is also the church's benefactor. Where do you get that? Verse 7. Grace was given 
to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then look at verse 8. When he ascended on high, he, that is Christ, gave gifts to man. Out of his bounty then, Jesus gives to his people that which is necessary for life and godliness, including gifts so that his people can serve him. Now, it just so happens that God's goal for us and his gifts to us are connected to one another. In chapter 3, the, verses we, or the chapter that we looked at last week, uh, Paul says that God is working in us that all of us together may be rooted and grounded in love. Uh, chapter 3, verse 17. God's end game is that we be marked by a love that links us together. And so, look at verse 3 now. Be eager to maintain or to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4. There is one body, one Spirit, who has called you in one hope, that belongs to your call. And then verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. God calls us to oneness because He is one in the mystery of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a common vision for the future support one another, enjoy one another. And you have been brought into that common life through Christ. Once you were an alien, once you were an outsider, once you didn't belong. But Christ has drawn you with his cords of love. And he's united you to himself and to other believers. That is your new identity. Who am I? I'm a new creature in Christ. I belong to Jesus. I share a common life with God. I share a common life with his people. Think with me, though, about some of the threats to our oneness. At home, these kinds of things can be threatening to oneness. Important things like, do we fold towels in half or in thirds? Do we squeeze the toothpaste tube in the middle or at the bottom? And dare I say it, there are other things that threaten our oneness, like voting for a Democratic or an Independent or a Republican candidate. Now, convictions of those kinds do really separate believers. And if you haven't seen that in the last few years, let me just assure you. And yes, at the same time, values that we embrace are important. So I am not suggesting that Christians live without convictions. 
or opinions on things like towels and toothpaste and political candidates. They're important. However, we want the Bible to inform the way we think about things. And so as we navigate our differences as a church, it's helpful to consider questions like this. Why in the church don't we see through identical lenses? Why at home don't we see through identical lenses? If God wanted unanimity, couldn't he have created an encyclopedia so that we have instant access to it? We push the button and then we get an answer to what we ought to think about every possibility. And what am I to think when I bump into somebody that I think is narrow-minded or maybe better, maybe you'll like this more, what am I to think when somebody points out my narrow-mindedness? And could relational struggles that we have be moments to pause might they be the occasion for us to consider what blind spots or insecurities or tendencies to self-protection are there under the surface of our lives? So listen now to verses 1 and 2. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Did you get that last phrase? Bearing with one another in love. It means to regard others with tolerance, to give patient attention to, to accept, to exercise self-restraint, now, if you're like me, the prospect of bearing with others can be a little overwhelming. That is so much an indicator of how we need God's word. And not only God's word, but we need the people of God. We have the word of God and the spirit of God and the people of God, and we need to listen the Lord is calling us to listen to his word in the community of the saints, not just all by ourselves, off in the closet. Of course, it's the case that the path of love is more challenging than anything that you are capable of achieving. And that's exactly the reason you need a Savior. So, as we work through these verses, and as you begin in a week, let's look anew in faith to Him. Well, aren't you glad that Christ is the head of the church? That He's the source of our life, and He has a goal for us? God cares for us through His head. And he also watches over the church through leaders who are 
facilitators. Look at verses 11 and 12, please. There we read, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, a couple sidebar comments here. These leadership titles, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, etc., those are not mutually exclusive. For example, uh, Paul says of himself that he was an apostle and he was also a teacher. And then, one of the things that pops up when we read that list is we ask the question, what's the relationship between shepherds and teachers? Some people view those as two gifts, uh, others as one. I'm inclined to go with the latter, that there's one category here, it's shepherd teacher or pastor teacher. You say, how come? Well, two reasons. One is because there's a single article before the two nouns, and the other reason is because um, in order to be a pastor, you have to be a teacher. Well, verse 12 then, we're told that Christ has given his people those with leadership gifts, and then look at the rest of the verse, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Church leaders are not gifted to call attention to themselves. Their gifts are to be used for the benefit of others. They're really servants. And so this idea of them equipping the saints for ministry is, first of all, a medical term. Uh, it was used to, for setting a bone, broken bone in place. But it's also linked to ideas like training and discipling and preparing and instructing and strengthening and making adequate. So that's the challenge for church leaders. And in the middle of verse 12, we see the goal of their work. What is it? What are church leaders supposed to aim at? Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And if you want to know, the word ministry is just a very gen generic kind of term. It's the same word that we use for deacon in English. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a generic term that means helping in most any way you can think of helping. So saints are to be equipped by leaders to do helping ministries. Now, what's the common thread that runs through that list of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. All involve some kind of verbal aptitude. God builds his church, in other words, with people who speak for him. And we could go off on a rabbit trail here and talk about how God's word is so important to him and how Jesus is the living word. But the point is, God builds up his church through the spoken word that comes through people of his choosing. And when will these leaders find that they've done their job? They're all finished with it. Well, look at verses 13 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we will no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Think about the task that is before a church leader. Church leaders face a veritable Mount Everest of challenges. It's nothing less than leading the people for whom they're responsible to unity, maturity, Christ-likeness expressed in self-sacrificing love. Now, consider it from this angle. The sheep of God's pastures have more mundane issues than we could name, like, as I said, towels and toothpaste, mundane things. Those things are possible sources of separation. But in addition to that, the church comes to the worship and service of God the people of the church come from a myriad of backgrounds. Uh, let's think about the backgrounds that are represented here. I've tried to go down and think about some of them. I don't know if I'm going to hit you or not, but I'm going to try. Um, there are people in our congregation who have come from atheism. Uh, Assembly of God, Pentecostal churches, Baptists. Muslim background believers, Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, Episcopal, Congregational, Roman Catholic, Evangelical Free, Sovereign Grace, Independent, Lutheran, Presbyterian, which are the ones I missed? United Methodists, thank you very much. Now, we're here um, wanting to love Christ together. But we bring lots of baggage, and if what I have just delineated doesn't speak to you a little bit about our baggage here, let me go at it from another angle. Represented among us are about uh, a dozen people with training from at least eight different seminaries. Which ones? Well, let me tick off those that I know. Uh, Asbury, Biblical, Crozier, Gordon-Conwell, Princeton, Reformed Episcopal, Southern Baptist, Westminster. Which have I missed? Okay, you get the picture, though. Now, these places, let me just say to you, these places of training are not monolithic in the way in which they approach the study of the Scripture. And that means that we have unique opportunities in this congregation to listen closely to one another, to hear from one another, to bless one another. And we have the potential, because of all this diversity, to become a more and more fit place in which the Holy Spirit dwells. That's exactly what Paul tells us at the end of chapter 2. That's, the Lord, that's what the Lord wants. Unity out of all kinds of diversity. And so we want to raise another question. What kind of... Uh, 
What do leaders need to bring to the task for them to move us to sacrificial service and loving unity? What do the leaders need to bring to the task? Well, certainly a love for the Lord. Also, a demonstrated love for his people and some ability to discern spiritual gifts around them, around them. And then an initiative, a willingness to take initiative to get to know people well enough to encourage them. At least those. There's probably a longer list that we could create. But those are some of the things that leaders need to bring to the table. I'd call it a growth mindset. And surely you can see that without that, there are many dangers to our moving toward oneness and maturity. Well, Christ is the head of the church. He's given us leaders. There's one more part of the church that is in view here. It's the saints, otherwise called the body builders. This is the real core of church life. And so verse 12, leaders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now skip down to verse 16 and look at that one, please. When each part of the body is working properly, that makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. Now, here's the thing. In proportion to the gift that he has received, each believer works with other believers. He does his part. He brings to the table what God has given him. And the real work of the church and the real love of the church comes to expression when there's this dependence, uh, this glad and sacrificial uh, contribution from individual members. How has Jesus gifted me? Where do I fit in the body? How can I best serve? These are some of the questions to ponder and to keep on asking, not only today, but over the whole course of your life. The longer we walk with the Lord, the better insight we gain, we hope, as to how he's gifted us, how he's designed us, and where we can maximize our service, and that's what he wants us to do. Let me say it this way. There's no Christian that's too young or too old. Answers to where and how are best discovered not alone, but rather in loving relations within a local body. Why? Because other people can see things in you that you can't recognize in yourself, in yourself. That's often the case. So, be loving and sacrificial in the use of your gifts to the Church of Christ. That seems to be the thrust of this passage. And so you say, well, where might I begin? And let me suggest three steps. First of all, pray. 
Ask the Lord to help you to understand how he's designed you and to reveal to you uh, what you think your best contribution is and where you might serve. How could I be of any benefit in this congregation? That's a good question to ask. And a second step that you can take is this. You can choose to be part of a small group where others can tell you what they see about your gifts. And what they see about your gifts in light of the larger needs of the church. And then I think there's one other thing. I think you can take a page from Elizabeth Elliot's life, um, which has to do with attitude. Elizabeth Elliot, who's she? Well, back in the mid-50s, she and her husband, Jim, their daughter, um, went with four other missionary couples to an unreached tribal group in Ecuador. They wanted to take the gospel to them. The Indians killed all five of the men. And amazing as it sounds, it happened. Elizabeth decided that she and her infant daughter would go back and live in the village where the murderers lived, and they did. She called her initial steps there the silent year. And the reason she named it the silent year is because she didn't know the language, didn't understand the culture. She could just kind of watch what was going on. But she said that those quiet days gave her time to think deeply about the meaning of a commitment to Christ. And she realized that to try to superimpose her stateside ideas about good and evil on that primitive culture would be a bad error. The Christian who has all the answers, she reasoned, who sees things as all black or white, just might be the Christian who is so rigid that he may never know the liberty of obedience, who, permanent, who is permanently bound to a perpetual immaturity. What are we about here as the people of God? We are creating a fellowship in which we welcome people and love people from the sake of, for the sake of Christ, regardless of background and regardless of biases and narrow-minded convictions. We want to love people that the Lord brings here. And we aim to communicate that this is a safe place to be and a safe place to become all that the Lord has designed you to be. But here's the thing. We can't become what we want to be without you. The challenge is much bigger than any one of us are up to. And so please explore your gifts Ask the Lord to help you to grow in your love for him. And ask him to help you to give yourself more sacrificially to those who are, no doubt, different from you. Uh, we want to build up one another into our head, the Lord Jesus. He's both the source and the aim or the goal of our life together. 
and we're reminded of our dependence on him as we now come to his table. Lord, we ask you to bless your word to us. Help us to be people who love because you first loved us. Help us to be people who preach to ourselves the wonderful truth that from your grace we have received, grace upon grace. Help us to be people who are grateful for our head and for our leaders and for one another. 